So I mentioned uh, this afternoon that I wanted to talk a little bit more about Donna tonight, but it's kind of embedded in the whole talk. It's not just about that. Um, you know, sometimes one it can sound like from the instructions we're giving, the the steady awareness, the complete non-interference, the really being totally present without changing anything to see how the mind and body work, it can give one the impression that really the culmination of this practice would be somehow abdicating involvement with life, abdicating engagement with life, which you know that's not true, right? But that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. But often people really think, well, that's to see if you never get involved, if you never change what's happening, how do we do anything in the world? And of course, that's not the point, but it works in a different way from what we think. Um, Or another thing that people say to me frequently, and I think I mentioned this in one or two of the groups, but people have often said this, as we're talking more and they're discovering more about how much um, greed and aversion are arising in the heart and mind and how much they kind of lead us to action and keep, keep on hammering about the unwholesome aspect of that. And so people have said quite seriously, literally, well, if I don't act from greed and aversion, what do I do, just sit in my room for the rest of my life? Very seriously, which is to me really saddening. Because that's, but that's kind of the implication, you know, these are the motivators of the world. These are the drivers of action, greed, and aversion. And we were exploring it in one of the groups where about a strong aversion, or greed too, can feel very enlivening, can it? Like gives us a sense of purpose. It kind of wakes us up from calm. Uh, let's have some aversion going on, some greed. We feel really much more alive and much more me too, which is really to the point. Um, but it, but it kind of overlooks the fact that there are many other impulses to speech and action than greed and aversion, which is, of course, all the wholesome that we've been talking about. But just to say from the Buddha, just so you know, that the point of of awareness, the point of wisdom, isn't to let us just be so cooled out that we don't engage in the world at all. This is one of the statements from the Buddha. In what way is one a wise person of great wisdom? A wise person of great wisdom does not intend for their own affliction or for the affliction of others or of both. Rather, when they think, they think only of their own welfare, the welfare of others and of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. So a wise person is known by the intentions of caring for the welfare, and you notice he also says the welfare of oneself, all equal. Sometimes we think, you know, if I'm really wise and compassionate, thinking about my own welfare is somehow greedy. But the the Buddha is saying we're all in this together. My own welfare is just as important as the welfare of another and the welfare of both. And in another place, he says... 
A wise person is known by their actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's wisdom, one's discernment shines. So he's definitely saying this is going, the understanding, the opening of heart and mind, the the real wisdom is going to manifest in how we are in the world, how we are with ourselves, how we are with each other. So wisdom and this awareness practice, it's not about abandoning acts in the world, but it's to allow the wisdom to grow that gives us the choice, the space to allow wisdom to choose to act from wisdom, from compassion, from appropriateness in the face of any situation instead of being so automatically seduced by the call of craving or the vitality of aversion. But the steady awareness, the wisdom that arises just gives that space to see more clearly and the appropriate response can naturally arise. But I want to uh, go a little more into, which many of you are aware of, what the Buddha means by action. He's very specific. And this is where looking at these habits of mind, the wholesome and the unwholesome, is so key. Because I know for most of us, except you know if you're used to hearing this, but if most of us, when we think of action, we think of the actual act as being good or bad or wholesome, whatever, are the actual words we say. But the Buddha was very clear. So first, um, the word kama just means action. So he says, intention or volition, I tell you, is action. Intending, one does action, one does kama by way of body, speech, and mind. And so what he's putting out, and this is what's so, it's so interesting and it's so helpful and accessible in seeing why cultivating, um, transforming the habits of mind is so key to waking up and to how we are in the world with one another, that the, the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of any action, as the Buddha talks about it, is in the intention. So that movement of mind, right? That chaitanya is the word in Pali, little movement of mind that gives rise to action. There would be no action without that movement of mind. We're not going to always notice it as arising in every moment. So that movement of mind arises together with whatever particular qualities are in the mind. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we've been hammering on it all week, right? Notice what are the qualities arising in the mind as you're being present, as you're eating, whatever. This is because these qualities in a moment leading to speech or action are going to be what's the motivation. Again, this will be very familiar to some of you from the Dhammapada This is Gil Fransdahl's translation. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act 
with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So obviously, corrupted mind means with greed, hatred, confusion, and a peaceful mind means with any of the wholesome qualities, calmness. Or as Dingo Kensi Rinpoche said, actions are the servants of the mind. And so this is really very, it's central, it's clear. This Dhammapada is like the, the second verse in the whole thing. It's very important. So this the time that we've spent here, seemingly just watching what's going on in the mind and the body and not engaging and just letting it all be, is so essential to really come to understand how the mind works, how, uh, how it feeds motivations and how motivations lead to action. But even just to get in the habit of tuning into what's going on in our mind, what leads to speech in action. Of course, we're not going to notice that a lot of time, but that's why there's so much emphasis on this steady awareness, recognizing what are the qualities arising in the consciousness right now, because that's going to be what leads to action, rather than focusing on the results. So, you know, you can see how the same seeming action, we can't really evaluate if it's it may be helpful to somebody, but we can't evaluate really from the person who did it, if it's not us, what's the quality of the action since it's in the intention. I mean, speech is a really good place to explore that, right? You can say something that you think will be for the good of another, but you can say it with total irritation, right? I'm telling you this, but your motivation is so you'll fix yourself and stop bugging me, you know? Right? I mean, totally. I mean, we can kid ourselves, but if we're really paying attention, we know. And frankly, they always know too, right? You really can't, can't hide it. Or, but just to see that. Or you can really say the same thing with a lot of care and loving kindness. Or you can say it kind of negligent. You meant to say it before and you knew it would be helpful, but right now you're just tired and you want to say it, so you just blat it out without paying any attention to what's going on with the person and whether they're tired or they just got some bad news, just completely oblivious, you know, a kind of delusion. Or it can be done with real care. Same words, same words. So this is just a very simple example, but starting to explore and recognize for ourselves that the... And when the Buddha talks about suffering or happiness coming from speaking or acting with a corrupted mind or a peaceful mind. Of course, he's talking about the suffering or the peace in our own mind and heart. It's not that, as we all know, if we do an act that's really kind and good, then everything good always comes back. (laughs) Not like so immediately sometimes. So if we're always looking at the external as as the evaluator, as the assessment, we're going to get really confused and disappointed sometimes. But when we're tuning into ourself, you know, if you've done something from the clearest, kindest motivation you could, and it just doesn't land with the other person, and you know you're willing to hear that if it doesn't land and you, you want to know why, that, you, know, you keep on going with it. Or it could be something they're just not interested. They're just off somewhere else and they just you know, brush you aside. But still, you have that, you're, you're with the clarity and the kindness of your own motivation. And that's really where the peace is, where the ease is. 
doesn't mean we can fix the world. So that's kind of why the quality arising in the heart-mind in this moment, which can lead to the thought-speech-action, is the key. It's the key to really understanding suffering and happiness. And when we talk about, I don't know if we've used the word the purifying the habits of mind here. Have we used that much at all? Sometimes we do. Because like, let's say transforming, in case purity is not a happy word for you. <laughs> so we're transforming the habits of our mind. Really, you could say in a way, uprooting, we're not uprooting, but wisdom dissolves, right? The habits of greed, hatred, delusion. In some ways... I've been feeling and having the sense more and more uh, the more I practice that actually everything the Buddha taught and all aspects of what he taught, not just sitting, not just meditation, are about transforming these habits of mind. That's it. All of it. And so when we think, oh, I'm just watching greed, 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 can I do something more interesting? <laughs> this is it. This is it. Until wisdom comes in and you have a moment of non-greed, then you can watch non-greed, non-greed, non-greed. That's really, this is the key. You know, the, the Buddha said over and over, you know, the, discovered um, the, the liberation of heart, of mind through non-clinging. Other times he said, Nibbana is directly visible. When? When the heart-mind is not obsessed with greed or obsessed with ill will or hatred or obsessed with delusion. So really, it's not like just a, a sidebar, but everything he taught, I really think, was in service of transforming these habits of mind and heart. Meditation, the steady awareness, what we've been cultivating, or other forms too, being the Dhanasila Bhavana is kind of like the three pillars the Buddha taught. Dhana, generosity. Sila, non-harming behavior. Bhavana, mental cultivation. Cultivation of heart and mind. And so we've had uh, Sila and Dhana kind of embedded in the retreat. But the focus, of course, has been more on the Bhavana. But all of it, all of it is working together. It's not just about Bhavana. So this may be the most direct way to insight may be the steady, steady awareness that sees clearly is, ah, because you can't, suddenly it lets go. But these other qualities of, of working with Donna and Sila, really embracing that as part of the path, is also very key, very supportive in transforming these habits. There's a statement I read from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche that I really like. That it, it, this is how it feels to me when the habits are transforming. What we're doing in every all aspects of our life. He says we we're mingling our minds with the Dharma until it permeates our whole being. That's what I feel we're doing. So if it's just meditation. We're mingling our mind with the Dharma in meditation. Then we go out and we can't continue to find awareness. So, oh, well, I have to wait till the next retreat. It's everything, everything in our life. Mingling our minds with the Dharma until it permeates 
our whole being. That just makes me so happy, just thinking that. And it's not like it's an act of will doing it, but it's the, the willingness to incline the heart and mind to the wholesome. And so that's just what I want to keep on talking about tonight, transforming these habits of heart and mind. So in terms of the meditation practice here, we've been seeing, I mean, we've talked a lot the last couple of nights about recognizing the wholesome qualities because that's equally important. But I know it's been coming up in the groups that one or two people have noticed that that greed (laughs) greed arises more frequently than they might have realized. (laughs) Once or twice people have noticed, gee, you know, judgment and ill will and aversion, it, it seems to to come up once in a while. It seems to be driving things, and I didn't even know it was here. And sometimes when we start to see it, not only start, actually, when we've been continuing to see it, over years, just let go, it's over years. It's not a couple of retreats, as people who've been sitting a long time know. These habits, they're being reinforced so many mind moments. We've practiced them so much, but they're habits. But, you know, people can get... Uh, a little despondent. Or it can at times feel overwhelming. Has it ever felt overwhelming? Just like, oh my God, look how much greed there is. There's no way. Because if you think you've got to like get out the pickaxe and uproot each moment of greed, that's endless, right? You uproot one and then another one comes up. You uproot one and go, have I done it yet? Oh, that was greed. Uh-uh, you know, I got to uproot another one. It doesn't really... That can seem... A little overwhelming, and that's not how it works, thank goodness. (laughs) So the wisdom does transform, and you may have noticed how sometimes um, it seems like it happens quite naturally. Mark, I think it was, or maybe both Mark and Alexis, mentioned uh, what the Buddha called the three wise intentions, how greed transforms into non-greed or generosity. And you can see the first one, how... um, Ill will transforms into non-ill will, friendliness. And harmfulness transforms into compassion, into caring. And many people have, have named or mentioned little moments here. They may seem insignificant, but it's important to recognize where just the steady awareness and the wisdom that arises from that naturally chooses the wholesome. And the, these unwholesome motivations in that moment either dissolve away, not seeming like an act of will, but just by themselves, or they don't arise. Just simple things. People that say, like, going, going to the meal and noticing greed, and then it just not acting on it, and it just drops away. It's like, wow, you know? Or going in at a time in the evening and, and expecting to have greed, and there isn't any. It just doesn't come up. It's just a little moment, but it's really significant to notice these things because this strengthens the confidence, not in your own ability, but in the fact that the steady awareness that leads to wisdom, that the wisdom really does let go of these qualities, doesn't feed these qualities. Or with ill will, maybe you've been noticing how much your mind is tending to judge. This is a really common thing. You sit there, and I've sat in the dining room sometimes when I'm on retreat, and everybody that walks by, everybody, 
some negative judgment. I can't believe they're wearing socks like that. I can't believe that. They must have had that on yesterday. I can't believe they're making that much noise when they're walking. I can't believe they're going so slow. I can't believe, you know, whatever. And finally, you notice, maybe it's not them. (laughs) It's possible. It's a possibility that there's a version, you know, distorting the perception. And then... So then you say, okay, this is what my mind does. I'm so aversive. I'm so, you know, you get used to it. You're making peace with it. And then one day you're sitting there and the person walks by and nothing comes up. Just friendliness. Oh, yeah, look at them. They're doing the best they can. Isn't that lovely? You go, who was that? That's not familiar. (laughs) That's not, but let it in. Let it in. You notice it's not like some fake. It's not you're faking it. You know, okay, let's pretend. May you be happy, you schlump. No, you really, it doesn't come up. It's really different. Yes, familiar, huh? We try. I mean, we're trying with the best of intention, but that's delusion. We don't know what we're doing. But when it really doesn't come up, feel that spacious heart and mind that's empty of ill will. It really is like Mark saying it's non-ill will. It may not be boundless metta, but it's non-ill will. Feel that. Or the times, the cruelty. Here, hopefully, we're not really being cruel to each other. But what kind of stuff does your mind say to yourself when things are going on that are difficult or aspects of your personality come up that you're familiar with and you really don't like and you think should be really over by now? How friendly, how kind is your mind with that sometimes, right? There's that real, why it's so hard. Often, why meditation is so hard, because we're just so cruel to ourselves. But then, have you noticed a moment when the same thing comes up, the mind maybe starts to get tight? Oh, yeah, that's really hard. It's okay. It's like this now. And that happens naturally. Again, let it just be perceived with awareness, the emptiness of cruelty, the space of compassion, just that simplicity of being with what is. It's not an act of personal will or forcing, but it's natural. And so the power of the awareness wisdom is really in some ways, you could say, maybe it's the most direct way of transforming the habits of mind. I mean, it's, you know, we know it's one at a time, but each moment like that, when the awareness is steady and you really notice the dissolving or the non-arising of the torment, it's a powerful moment. It's really transforming the habits. And they are habits, the difficult, these difficult qualities. It's not inevitable. It can seem like it's inevitable sometimes. I heard just a snippet of a talk by... Um, Bishop Desmond Tutu to some, I think it was to some um, either young young um, men and women like in their early 20s living in a really difficult part of town and in an area where there's a lot of violence. And he was just um, telling them that, you know, it's really up to you. But he, he turned to them and said very forcefully, we learn to hate. Hate isn't natural. You don't have to hate. We learn to hate. And uh, as much as there's so much you know, violence and hatred in, in the world and how much 
often the news seems to feed that and just keep giving us more examples of it. We can also always find examples of the opposite, where people in really circumstances I can't imagine being in respond in a different way, respond with compassion, respond with kindness. It's like, it just is a great thing to take in because when we look, I feel like when I look inside my own heart and mind, I'm seeing all the, the aspects of suffering and the potential for beauty, for wholesomeness, for love, for compassion. And I'm this microcosm of human beings, we all are. So we look in ourselves, we see the difficulty, but also the beauty, also the potential, and the same out in the world. So when I hear something like that, I just kind of, somebody's doing, saying something that's just inspiring like that. I just, I just take it in and just really appreciate it because it, it brings up faith in me. It brightens the heart and mind. So the latest one I just heard a couple of weeks ago on the BBC, there the, it was the day after the attacks on the mosques in New Zealand. So the BBC, I don't know how the reporters do this. You know, they're down there interviewing survivors. I don't know how you can do that. But anyway, they were down there interviewing. So they were talking to one man who had been in the mosque with his wife, and she had been killed. And they said he was an elderly man who was um, living in a wheelchair, wheelchair-bound, and she had been his main caretaker. And she had been killed. So they're interviewing him and kind of, you know, the kind of questions like, who do you blame and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's almost... But he was just saying, I wrote it down because I really liked it. He was saying, um, perhaps someone who acts like this person did is hoping that there will be retaliating violence from other Muslims, but that's not going to happen here. He said, we are one people. And he was talking about all the people in New Zealand, not only the people in the mosque. We are one people. You know, we don't want vengeance. We need to change within ourselves to be able to live together. I just thought that was so beautiful when his wife had just been killed and we have to change within ourselves to live together. And that's true. And so, you know, it's, it's out there in the world. There's many, many people cultivating and committed to waking up in whatever way, to transforming the hearts and minds, to developing the wholesome. And sometimes we can see it in ourselves, and that can strengthen faith. But when we see it in others, that can also strengthen faith. Because in a way, he says, you know, we are one humanity. And different, different stories, but the same way that the heart and mind and body work. So exploring this. Okay, so I want to speak a little about Donna and Sila as the Buddha taught, and I really, as I say, as, as aspects, as ways to embrace transforming the habits of our heart and mind. So, as most of you know, he would always, whenever he would, the Buddha, would begin um, a teaching, always to lay people, but, but especially to lay people, he would talk about generosity first. And I have to say, just to be honest, in the beginning of my practice here, well, it started in India, but then here, um, the emphasis and the interest very much on bhavana, 
on meditation for all the different reasons, you know. And of course, generosity is always, yeah, generosity is good, you know. And, and sila is also, you need sila so you can practice better. Um, as so, so as sound, as foundational, but I never really got it, and I'm not blaming my teachers, but I, I'm, I'm just, I mean, after my first retreat, I didn't even know it was Buddhism. I'm sure the teacher might have mentioned it. So I'm not <laughs> really, like, blaming, blaming the teachers. <laughs> it changed my life. I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on, you know, which just shows we don't have to know that much, but we just do it. But anyway... And so, of course, growing up here, too, generosity was always, it's a good thing. And I think my family was generous. People in this country are generous. But again, the sense is uh, tending to be uh, focused on what was given and how much. So you might, people would say about someone, oh, they're so incredibly generous. And it's usually about someone who has a lot to give. You know, It doesn't have to be, but it often is. But the generosity, just as with everything else, is actually about the motivation in the heart, in the mind. That opening of heart, of mind, that doesn't hold on to whatever it is, whether it's time or a smile or just a willingness to connect or a flower or money, whatever it is. But it's that at the heart of generosity, it's not about a should you have to give because that's the right thing to do. It's because the act of generosity, the motivational act of it, is, an, is a, a source of real happiness. It's a source of real connectedness and happiness. And I really didn't understand this until I spent a lot of time in um, Thailand and Burma practicing in country where it's, um, in, in, in the Buddhist part of the country. It's not all Buddhist. Um, that's a very deeply ingrained um, understanding. And it can get warped because we can warp everything. But the sense of, the, in, in Burma, they'll say, oh, this is an opportunity for Donna. And that's like, they get excited. Like, oh, look at this, an opportunity for Donna. And they'll get really happy and go find whatever way they can offer, food or whatever it is. And so in the moment of um, a generous act, whatever it is, tuning into the motivation, and you can feel how in that moment of sharing it counters, there's not ill will in that moment. In fact, it was said somewhere that the Buddha suggested if you're feeling ill will towards someone, you should give them a gift. So before I understood the motivational thing, I didn't understand what that was, you know, and I get, you get paranoid if someone gives you a gift, right? <laughs> like, <here. laughs> you give a little gift. But it's not that. It's if you're really moving from generosity, in that moment, there's not ill will. In that moment, it's really an open-hearted connectedness, and it brings a happiness to the mind. It is an ill will, so it's actually countering the ill will. Counters, uh, of course, greed and possessiveness, whether it's your time or a thing, whatever. And also self-cherishing. And it strengthens the sense of connectedness, the sense of the recognition of non-separation. So just, I mean, you don't have to get all, you know, intellectual about it. I'm talking about it. But this is all like in one moment when you're actually giving anything, 
to really do it with fullness of presence and a sense of appreciation and, and dignity, kind of. Like I sometimes I, one time, sometimes I would feel a little abashed to be offering something, whatever. What if they don't like it or just feel a little self-conscious or something? And that really cuts the mutuality. The thing that really feeds and strengthens the happiness of generosity is the mutuality in the giving with dignity and mindful attention and the receiving in the same way. Really conscious. So when you give, really tune into the motivation to offer. And when you're actually doing it, staying present with that, really present. And then afterwards, later, you can actually reflect on the act of generosity. And the Buddha suggests this. And that brightens the mind and heart. So there's like three moments of brightness, of happiness from an act of generosity. The motivation, the actual doing, and the reflection afterwards. And it's not like happiness, so it feels good, la, 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 like eating chocolate. It's a way that it brightens the heart and mind. It's countering ill will. One time when Sera Upandita was here, um, and I was practicing that uh, for a couple months or whatever. Anyway, I'd heard he wanted a specific book, or he like a specific book. And so I wrote a friend of mine who was on staff while I was sitting, would he get this for me and give it to Sayada, which he did. He said it was from Carol and blah, blah. So when the retreat ended, and I was just paying my respects to Sayada, he told someone to go get this book, and he brings it out, and he hands it to me and says, okay, now give it to me directly. <laughs> it was really interesting. And I was, like, nervous, you know. I mean, he could be intimidating. But um, so it was like, because he was so present, you know, I was handing it to him, and he's fully present. Give it to him directly. And he said, and I'm not sure he said this, but it's what Burmese people say a lot. He said something similar. And they mean it. Even just a little gift to a laywoman in the monastery, you give it, and I go, really receive it with full presence and say something to the effect of, may this be a cause for you to reach nibbana in the shortest possible time. Isn't that nice? You give somebody $5, and they're saying, may this be a cause for you to reach Nibbana in the shortest possible time? I mean, it's a whole different feeling around the act of generosity and the act of receiving. So, yeah. Something I really learned about this, the sense of the mutuality, is that in the giving, it's equally important to receive. And so spending time in, uh, more in Burma, where I've spent more time, where the place where, actually near where Shui Yumin is, is another place I spend some time. And there's many, many small nunneries around there. there tons of them. And some of them really poor. And nunneries, uh, like monks get a bit more support. But there's a lot of poor nunneries, and they live completely on dana. I mean, they're not out there earning a living for building the buildings, for getting their food, for having toilets, for digging a well, all that kind of stuff. And so um, a few friends, our friends have been giving us um, donations when we go over in the winter. And then we offer it to certain nunneries. They need a well. They need a toilet like that. So you offer, and we said this is from hundreds of friends. You know, we're just, the, we're just carrying it and offering it. And then 
that the, the beauty with which it's received, not like, oh, thank you, we're so poor and we hate to, you know, it's humble, embarrassing. No, it's received with real um, appreciation and then they get together and do a whole metta chant, a whole blessing chant. It's really a very formal ceremony. And then, and this is what I had to really learn, then the nuns would want to invite us back and give us lunch. And they would give us a lunch that was like, you know how, 25 different curries for three people. And then another whole table of desserts. They don't eat like that. They're not eating any of that. And what we could leave over, which was most of it, they'd probably live on for a week. You know, they wouldn't eat with us. But if we said, no, 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 we're, we're well taken care of. You keep this. You eat it for yourself. That's completely cutting. The mutuality, the, the sharing, the back and forth sharing. They were so happy to watch us eat. I mean, it's really hard because they eat, 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 you know, until you can't stand another minute. Finally, after a couple of years, we said, okay, we're just saying no to everybody because it's really too much. But the sense of the mutuality and us saying, oh, I have more than you, so you shouldn't give me anything. How that shuts the oneness, that shuts it all off. But the dignity and the beauty in, re- in receiving actually, again, brings joy and happiness to the heart. So it's really transforming a kind of a whatever it is, holding separate, to wholesomeness, to generosity, to metta, to not compassion at that point. It's more metta and generosity. It's so important. And how then the whole cycle of generosity is contagious. and It just keeps on going and going. So I'll just tell you one little story because I thought of it today because of a friend who's practicing here started it. Years ago, again, was at Shui Yumin, I don't know, was it 10 years ago or something? <clears throat> and she had been sitting there and had gone over, and I hadn't been there before. I didn't know any of the nuns or anything around. And she had wandered around and met a nun in a small nunnery that didn't have much and kind of be, made friends with her and then offered her money to get electricity. She didn't have electricity and you needed, I don't know, it was a few hundred dollars or something. It was complicated then. So she offered that, and she was really, really happy to be able to offer that. And then became friends with this nun, Dawsumanachari is her name. And then she would invite her for mohinga, which is this um, fish soup that's like the, especially in Yangon, it's like the, one of the special dishes of Yangon. So to make a mohinga is like a real gift, you know. And then this, this friend invited me to come along, so I met her and had that great mohinga. Anyway... So over the years, going every year, we'd meet this nun. This is just one example of, like, I could give 100. We'd meet this nun, and she had a, a little nunnery who was slowly growing, maybe 20 nuns there. Frankly, she always seemed a little bit depressive. But one year, maybe, <laughs> well, just normal people, you know, just seemed a little pulled in. One year she came, uh, maybe four years ago, and... Uh, came knowing that we had a a little money to offer, but she said, you know, I've just been not able to sleep. I'm so feeling that there's so many poor kids in this area that couldn't afford to go to the government schools. I mean, a lot. And she said, I just want to start a school for these poor kids. A lot of, quite a few nuns do that, which is amazing considering what it entails to do that. So I just want to do this, you know. And we thought, well, we can offer something and see what happens. We came back the next year, and there's like 
she'd taken down one, she had two small buildings and the 25 nuns lived in one and ate in the other. So she'd taken down one of the buildings then they'd all moved and crammed into the other one. And this is common. And had a huge, she had a school, like 100 kids were coming. And just had kind of a lean-to. Now there's actually companies have come from Japan and built a school building. And so she had a lean-to and these kids coming. And to, to do this, it means she's getting all of this on Donna, hiring teachers, regular lay teachers that you have to pay their salary every month, all of that on Donna. And, and then she came to just you know, talk about it to us at the end of that. And she was shining. Her face was shining. She was saying, wait, I wrote it. I wrote it down. I mean, I can't speak Burmese, but our friend Aria can. And she said, even though now I must work so hard, because really it's the head nun who ends up having to hold it all together, and that's her. I have to work so hard to find support every month for the teacher's salaries, for the equipment. We still have to have food. We need more toilets. We need desks. And all of this is true. Even though I have to work so hard to do this, all the energies for the children and the school, and so my mind is so calm and happy. And she really looked like that. She said, I'm so happy if I can do this for the rest of my life. And um, she's still doing it. It keeps getting bigger. And it's no exaggeration. She's working like crazy. You know, she looks really tired, I have to say. But she's really happy at being able to help all these kids. And so it kind of keeps going around, going around. So the generosity to her and then her generosity to the kids. And then one year, was it two years ago? Garbage pickup wasn't really a concept. Um, It's like you dump it on the ground or you burn it over there. And it's just starting to to happen. But at this time, not. But one day, we went out for a walk and there was Dasumanachari with a whole group of kind of the older kids. It was like the last day of school or something. And she'd organized down the street, down Shweumin Road. She'd organized that these kids were going down with trash bags and picking up all the trash. That might not seem like a big deal to you guys, but that's like an unheard of thing. It's like we were so amazed. We were so impressed to see that. She looked around and said, okay, let's clean up the trash here. You know, of course, there's nowhere to take it. <laughs> there's nowhere to take it, but it was wonderful. So she's training the kids, you know, and that you don't just throw your trash on the ground. She's cleaning up this road that involves hundreds of people who live on it. And I don't know, the generosity just keeps cycling, cycling. This is how it's transforming the habits in our mind, and it's contagious. Wholesomeness is contagious. It inspires us internally, externally. So... That's what I want to say about generosity. I could go on and on. I love talking about it because it makes me happy. Just contemplating your own generosity or your own sila, as the Buddha talked about, it really can brighten the mind. In fact, there's various suttas where the Buddha comes and he sits down and he's going to talk to just a, a motley group of people. You know, he doesn't know them, not his nuns and monks. And they, it was said that he could kind of look around and just tell what, what was in anybody's mind. So he would look around and see, you know, who in this teaching could hear the Dhamma, could really hear it, could let it in. And then he would kind of zero in on whoever he thought it was. And it's often said he would, do, he would begin with what he called a graduated teaching. 
He didn't just jump in and start, start talking about, you know, impermanence. If you graduated teaching, you talk about Donna, you talk about Sila, you talk about refuge, he talk about kama, action and result, the joy of renunciation. And then, his voice said, when, the, when he saw that the mind of the person was ready, pliable, uplifted, serene, bright, then he would talk about the deep dhamma. So it's all going together. So transforming the habits from just, ah, whatever. Because one of the people, there's a great sutta where there's a, a, a guy with leprosy named Supa Buddha, a, a beggar, and he sees this whole group around the Buddha and he goes, oh, maybe they have some food over there. So he goes over there to get some food. And there's no food. He goes, oh, well, I might as well just sit and listen. And the Buddha looks out, and he's the one the Buddha sees that could hear the Dhamma. You never know. So he did this. And when the mind, the heart is bright, pliable, uplifted, then he would teach the Dhamma, and Supa Buddha got it. So this is what we can do for ourselves. When we're feeling like we're just kind of down or lost, you go, so I haven't been aware for three weeks I haven't sat, I can't possibly do it, I'm no good, whatever. Just go give somebody a bunch of flowers. Just, uh, you know, call a friend who you know is down. Send a check to your favorite charity, but do it really with, with clarity, knowing what you're doing. Or simply contemplate, rise reflection, previous acts of generosity. And it really... It set, as the Buddha said, it sets the mind and the heart straight. When one is contemplating one's acts of generosity or non-harming, then at that time there's not greed, hatred, or delusion in the mind. The heart-mind is set straight on the Dhamma. So explore that. Explore, and then we go, no, that's not really, that's not really generous. All I did was just kind of gave somebody a piece of fudge. It doesn't matter what. That might be the best thing they had that whole week, you know. But it's that sense, don't, don't buy into this kind of negativity we get into or personality like, oh, that's just being egotistical. If it's egotistical, it won't brighten the mind and heart. You'll feel the difference. But I think I was never, I never really learned to sit and just think about or just to call up or just let come up. Times that there was generosity, times that there was metta, times that there was non-harming. It really does make you happy. Just thinking about it makes you happy. Okay, a little bit about sila. Again, it's working in the same way. In the most basic level, of course, the Buddha talked about non-harming behavior as the five lay precepts, the ones we took on the opening night, except the third one isn't celibacy. It's not harming oneself or others through one's sexual energy. So that's the basic sila. But again, um, I mean, even if we just set it as a a rule, you don't do this, and you come up against it without much self-reflection, and you just, okay, don't steal, and you don't steal, that's already great, because that's transforming some motivation. Even if you want to steal, take something that isn't yours, but you come up against the rule and you don't do it, that refraining is actually a wholesome act. We tend to just say, well, I wanted to do it. I just didn't because of the rule, but I'm such a bad person. But you didn't do it. That's the wholesome act. In that moment, that transformed the motivation from taking to restraint. And restraint is actually wholesome. 
But as we look more deeply, of course, really looking at what's going on in the heart, in the mind, around our actions in reference to non-harming behavior, then we see it's really quite profound in exploring the movements, the motivations in our heart and mind that come up even in the thought wanting to do or not wanting to do, what it requires. We read from Ajahn Suchito, talking about the precepts, the five precepts. The transcendent point is not what they look like, not just like, don't do this, don't do that, but what they call forth in our heart and mind, what it takes to keep them, the efforts the effects, not the and the effects that keeping the precepts have on your life. Really exploring what happens when we pay attention. He says, Sila, like Donna, is based in a sense of empathy. It's not a one-time thing. Okay, I didn't lie today. It's a making non-harming a way of life. So, this isn't. They are to be protected, the, the precepts, protected with a sense of truly valuing one's own mind, one's own body, and the context of the people one lives with. With these precepts, we extend that sense of respect and regard to our own, from our own mind and body. We extend that towards all creatures so that we impart value to this realm that we share with others. So tuning into the motivations that help us keep the precepts, I think it's really profound. Sometimes if we really just kept tuning into this, it it would also completely transform the habits of our mind. Because as we pay attention just to see what effect, just moving towards, say, harsh speech, just the effect of the thinking of doing it, the reverberations it has in our own heart and mind when we're tuning in as we're noticing it more. And then if we actually act on it, and as Tejaniya says, even when we act on the unwholesome, bring awareness along with you. So we see, we learn the effects. That's how we learn. And I know now when I've said something you know, thoughtless or harsh or whatever, it really reverberates with me. And I can see it reverberate with the person, but it really reverberates with me. It's really a sense that, you know, it's, it's respect for one's own being, respect for other beings, and it's totally interrelated, totally interrelated. So I do want to say again that the really appreciating restraint as a wholesome act. Because somebody thinks, well, I should, if I have these unwholesome ideas come up, you know, these, this mosquito is driving me crazy, and you just really want to slap it and kind of slap it on the side, you know, kind of, I'm trying to miss it, but this is like in the middle of the night and a bad mosquito season, the worst, the worst little habits come out in the middle of the night when you hear that in your mosquito net. It's like one of the worst things. And you can see the aversion and this urge to kill. It's a horrible feeling if you really tune into it. So we need to bring the awareness along to see that, to see that, you know, not just turn off the awareness. And this is not, so the precepts aren't meant like, you know, it's a vow and if you break it, you're going to hell. 
is really to bring us to pay attention, to see what's going on, and appreciate even feeling that hatred, and they restrain the hand and don't kill the mosquito. That's an act of non-harming. Appreciate it, and that will feed the wholesome. You just focus on, I, I was going to do it, and I'm so bad, and no, 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 that's just more ill will. Focus, oh yeah, okay, manage not to do it. Non-ill will came up. Let's appreciate that. That strengthens the wholesome. This is Ajahn Suchita again. Morality carries with it the strength of restraint, the empathy of concern for how one's actions affect oneself and others, and the clarity of discerning the difference between short-term happy feelings and long-term well-being. I love that. Discerning the difference between short-term happy feelings and long-term well-being. Get rid of the mosquito, short-term happy feeling. I don't have to hear that anymore. Not long-term well-being for the mosquito or for me. So it's like the Buddha said, you know, the wisdom to be able to be momentarily with the unpleasant, but for a wholesome outcome. That's one aspect of wisdom. Something very interesting about the precepts. And there's a kind of, which I just wanted to say, being around people who really have strong sila is, to me, enormously inspiring. Kind of can feel the purity. I was telling the guys (laughs) the other day, uh, we were talking about I forget what seal I guess, but we, I remembered a time when Sayada Upandita was here teaching with a couple of other monks. And he was a very strong, very strong teacher, but he's also a very strong holder of sila. The, all the monks' rules, but just all the aspects of sila. He was very strong in it. And I remember one day I kind of they were, they were just eating, you know, they would eat in their own room and be fed. I don't know what I was doing, or I must have been on staff at the time, because I just kind of bopped into the room. I wasn't a yogi. And to give something or take something, I wasn't really thinking about anything, particularly, I just bopped in. And I felt, I still remember, this sense of purity in that room was palpable. It kind of knocked me back, because I wasn't thinking about it or expecting it, you know, at all. It, it's an amazing thing the kind of power that comes from non-harming, from really our commitment to that. It's transforming your heart and mind. And you're going to see more clearly this is the the freedom of non-clinging. So notice for yourself. It's a lovely feeling when you start to have more confidence in the wholesomeness in your heart and mind, in the wholesomeness of your seal of that. You know, we're going to blow it but more confidence that you can trust that, more confidence in the wholesome instead of thinking we're always going to go into the negative. So a simple story I tell. I was with a friend. We were at Spirit Rock, not, not on retreat, and I wanted to go buy a little um, white Tara statue from their bookstore. If you've been to Spirit Rock, have any of you been to Spirit Rock? You know, the, the Jagundo bookstore, right, with 10 million things in it. My God. So... I wanted this statue, and it's self-service. So we went in, we're looking all around, and couldn't find it, couldn't find it. But my friend had sometimes volunteered working there. She said, 
I know where the closet is where they keep them all. So we went, and she knew where the special magnet opener was, and we opened the closet. And it's this huge closet with all these shelves just packed with statues, <laughs> like hundreds of statues, all different ones. So no one's around. We're taking out all different statues to look for the one that I wanted. And so we're both doing, you know, they're all kind of the same ones we're together. So we both took out at the same time like a Manjushri statue. Because Manjushri has this little, um, Manjushri has a sword of wisdom. And at the same time, we just barely touch it and that sword broke for both of us. We're each holding one and it goes, oh, no, you know, <laughs> both of us. And, and then we said, well, we, this, later we dissected this. We both momentarily, in each of us, the thought came up, I could put it back and no one will know. And the thought came and it had, there was no way it landed in either of us. We'd never even thought about it. We both looked at each other and said, I guess we have to go tell Mary Ann, who runs the bookstore, is a friend of ours. And like kids going to the principal, you know, we broke the statue. Um, but it was interesting because we both felt so good about that, really, that, the, that we could have put it back and no one would have known, that it never even landed. The thought came and just went nowhere because it was so obvious we weren't going to steal it's just a little thing. It doesn't mean you're like perfect with Sila, but let stuff like that in. It really strengthens one's faith and confidence in the Dhamma, in the fact that it really works, that the habits of mind are being transformed. We don't have to just live in the inevitability of these difficult habits. So just a couple of last suggestions to end. That there's times as we're tuning into our motivation before acting, when we can see, you know, that it's unwholesome, take a moment, reflect on it. You know, the Buddha gave this very famous talk to his son Rahula, that before you do any action, reflect on the motivation. Is it for your own good, the good of another? Then do it. If it's not, don't do it. Or if you don't remember, in the middle of the action, reflect on the motivation. Is it for your own good, the good of another? Do it. If not, stop doing it. Or it's over. Reflect on what was the motivation. So we can do that. We can do that ourselves. I'm learning to do it on answering emails, you know, which is really a great place. You just, when you, especially if you think a little bit of aversion in there. I've just got to tell them how to do this right. And I really see it. And the answer comes up really quick and I have all this energy and I'm typing the email. I'm learning to recognize that energy isn't discriminating wisdom. That energy is aversion. Don't hit the send button. Close the computer. Send it another day. And you read it the next day and you go, whoa. <laughs> Good thing I didn't send that. You know, we can reflect, find ways to reflect on what you're doing. Sister Chan Kong, who is the nun who has been with um, Thich Nhat Hanh for years and years and years, she's really very committed to this. In her autobiography, and I'll just end with this, in her autobiography, which was written quite a few years ago, um, she's talking about, well, you know, they were living in France, now they'd been uh, not allowed to come back to Vietnam, even in the Vietnam War, because they were peace activists and weren't taking sides with either side north or south Vietnam. So neither side trusted them and exiled them. So anyway, at this time, living in France, and she's still a peace activist, working... Well, I'll just read this from her. At that time, many people were being arrested, nuns, monks, artists, and 
She said, every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Is that what you do when you become angry? I'm angry. I better do some walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to rediscover my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to let my heartbeat relax, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a wonderful monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. And this is like, uh, she spent her life being a real peace activist and a deep practitioner of mindfulness meditation. And you can see just that willingness to tune into the motivation first, always first, and with all these tools to help transform the habits. This, to me, this is the work of our lifetime, and all of our life is part of it. There's nothing outside of it. Every time we speak, every time we act, we're going to blow it 10 million times, but it's always an opportunity to see what's going on. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.